Welcome to episode 8 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. Today we have a recording from this month's Humanist Association of London Area's monthly meeting. The speaker is Tony Martin, who is a longtime member of HALA and a lifelong resident of Detroit, Michigan. In his presentation, entitled My American Life, he will speak about his experience of growing up in Detroit and living as a person of color in America from the period of the civil rights movement in the 1960s to the present Trump era. We hope you'll enjoy this recording and feel free to give us any feedback on our podcast website at www.humanistagenda.com. Yes, you know, as a um, famous comedian of about a half century ago said, uh, I started out as a child. <laughs> and, <laughs> and lest there be any doubt, that's me on the left. <laughs> yes, with my twin sister, Antoinette. So now what I'd like to do today, or this evening, is uh, just share some thoughts with you regarding my history, my family's history, without going into a whole lot of detail per se, I don't want to bore you with that, but then also the, the geopolitics that influenced the lives of my family, including myself at the present. Okay, that's two. So beginnings and geopolitics, and then finally, I'd like to share with you um, some of my personal reasons for hope, for optimism. When I was here uh, with the uh, when I was here to speak before, of course, the subject had to do with the founding fathers of the United States, humanism, humanist thought amongst the uh, founding fathers. And so we kind of examined um, the varying belief systems, if you will, of uh, particularly the first five, the first, well, the first five presidents, I'll say. There were a number of uh, founding fathers, maybe as many as 20, officially, but we looked at the first five uh, presidents of the United States from George Washington through James Monroe. Um, tonight, and I've given you just a little bit of a preview of this, um, we're going to focus or draw attention to one in particular, the middle one, the third president of the United States, and that was Thomas Jefferson. And I personally find him to be uh, the most fascinating of all of, the founding, all of the founding fathers. That's my personal view, and for a number of reasons. And I think that um, as we progress through this discussion this evening, I think you'll uh, have uh, perhaps a similar, or, or you'll at least understand my point here. So now what I'd like to do next, though, is you've already seen this one. All right, and again, that's, uh, we're going to fast forward. 18 years, I've, I've given away my age, of course. <laughs> and so, yes, with my sister Antoinette, and it is Antoinette, not Antoinette. <laughs> There's a story behind that. My name is Antony, without the H. Her name is minus the I, and that was my mother's doing, because she wanted her twins to have names that were quite similar. So I am Antony Ivan, well, can't see that now, and my sister, my twin sister, is Antoinette Ivany. <laughs> my mother was very creative. And so we have the same initials. So now, 
um, as you can see here, um, that was an interval of uh, 18 years. Um, my, my twin sister, Antoinette, and her husband, Irvin, and by the way, Irvin and I were in high school together. All three of us were in high school together. We graduated from high school together. Her husband of 48 years, Irvin, uh, sat right behind me in middle school when we were 14 years old. We've got a long history. But they've uh, together raised four children, you know, during those said 48 years. Um, they live or they reside out in Oxford, Michigan, for those of you who might be familiar with o Oakland County. They're in northern Oakland County. They have a very nice home on several wooded acres. They are both retirees of Chrysler Corporation. You see that Detroit connection there, of course. And, and you, that, that'll come up again, that, uh, that particular company. And so they've, uh, we might say, achieved the American dream. I might point out one other thing. My um, twin sister's oldest daughter works for Chrysler as well. Um, she's an electrician, so she's in skilled trades. Got about at least 25 years on the job. And then um, the oldest son, Lawrence is his name, he's... Uh, named in honor of my father. My father's middle name is Lawrence. My sister bought a IBM uh, PC Junior for him about 35 years ago or so when he was about eight years old. Well, he took to that um, little IBM Junior like a duck to water. And um, he began programming and creating games and all of that sort of thing. And then he was building computers and selling them and so forth. And so now he is a... Um, graduate with a, uh, he has an MBA from the uh, University of Pennsylvania. He's an engineer uh, with Microsoft, a company you might have heard of before. So I'm, I'm sharing that with you, you know, just to kind of illustrate what life has been like for my family, you know, for me. I'm not going to say to you that, you know, when I was a youngster, you know, we, I, I had to walk 10 miles to school uh, uphill both ways. In, in the dead of winter and didn't have shoes. And <laughs> no, it wasn't like that, you know, in spite of some of the stereotypes. But that said, let's move on a little bit. Okay. On the left, you'll see my paternal grandparents. We have, and, and I shared this photo with some of you the last time around when I spoke before, but just wanted to share this again. My grandmother and grandfather, my father's parents on the left, they were immigrants from the West Indies, from Antigua for my grandfather, and Montserrat, which is a neighboring island. It was said that a person could be standing on the shore on the beach at Montserrat and could look over and see the women hanging up their laundry, hanging up the clothing uh, on Montserrat. I don't know how true that is. But my um, paternal grandfather, his name was William Arthur Martin. My grandmother, Georgiana. And she was named, interestingly enough, in honor of a, a group of monarchs of the Hanoverian line, Georgiana. And I think of that line, there were at least three Georges, I think, up through George V. I could be wrong. After all, I'm only American. But my um, grandfather was named in honor of William IV, who was the sailor king and who, of course, succeeded George III. And um, his middle name is Arthur, after a legendary king of England. Did he really exist? Maybe not. Compelling story, though. So as mentioned, um, they immigrated from Antigua, Montserrat, also from Panama. Some of my family came from Panama, 
or found themselves in Panama. And of course, this was um, about a century ago, and some of the family went there to work on the Panama Canal. And so I remember growing up that, you know, we considered ourselves West Indians from the West Indies. And I remember the thick Caribbean accents of my grandparents and many of the older relatives that had come from the old country, if you will. But they uh, immigrated to the United States coming in through Ellis Island, as was true of uh, literally millions of others from all over the world, coming to America in search of a better life for themselves, for their families, and of course for their descendants. I count myself as one of them, and I've I'm, I'm grateful for it, uh, quite frankly. My grandfather, well, actually, I should say that the family resided in New York for a time, but then they were drawn to Detroit by the auto industry. The uh, prospect of a job, at, a good-paying job at Ford Motor Company, and, of course, uh, the prospect of a better life for them all. I should point out, too, um, that uh, it was about 100 years ago again, about a century ago, that Henry Ford in Detroit set out to build the largest industrial complex on planet Earth, the Ford Rouge plant. And so, of course, that was a big draw to Detroit, and that resulted in rapid growth for the city. He built the plant on the confluence of the Rouge River and the Detroit River. And, of course, the Detroit River isn't really a river but that's another story. But the uh, import of that is that raw materials could be brought in to that facility by the river, by water, freighters, and also by trains as well. They could bring in the raw materials for steel, glass, all of the raw materials required to build a car. And so they bring the raw materials in, as it said, on one end of the plant and drive out a finished product a finished car on the other. And when the uh, Rouge, when that Rouge plant was like ramped up to full production, there was about 100,000, they employed about 100,000 men and women there. And so that pretty much established Detroit as, as it has been known, the industrial capital of the world, at least at one time. Now, not so much. A little bit about my paternal grandparents, Barry and Lillian. How do you like that fedora? (laughs) Oh, yeah. You you can see where I get my suave from. (laughs) (laughs) But they came from Alabama, uh, from the Deep South. And they eventually uh, reached Detroit, but it was by way of Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Because my grandfather was initially a coal miner. And that was one of the few jobs that was open you know, to individuals, you know, to men in the South, if you will. Um, My grandfather first took the family to Pennsylvania, where my mother was born, to the coal mining towns there, and then from there to West Virginia, to the coal mining towns there. And from there, they made their way to Detroit, and again, drawn by the auto industry. By the way, I've traced uh, my ancestry, you know, through... Does anyone here use Ancestry.com? No? Um, It's too expensive. (laughs) Yes, back to 1856. My grandfather here, his grandfather was named Barry, just like him. And his wife was named Lavinia, Lavinia Rencher. His grandfather, 
Barry I, was born a slave in 1856. Lavinia was born in 1863. So she might not have been born a slave because, of course, in 1863, it, that was when the Emancipation Proclamation was um, released by uh, none other than Abraham Lincoln. I think that was January 1st. And there's a little technicality to that because the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves in the South, but not in the North. And, and that was a, a war measure, a war tactic, shall we say. So just a little bit of my history there. Let's just move on to more modern times. My parents, um, that's Thomas Lawrence Martin and Doris Martin. This is uh, November 5th, 1949. Now, just a month prior to this date, my father got a job at Chrysler. He started there as a janitor. And then he worked his way from there into the foundry, you know, where he was working in the steel mill for Chrysler. And uh, ultimately, he moved into skilled trades and became a pipe fitter. And that's what he was when he retired, you know, after 44 years on the job. That's a picture, a photo of my father when he was 17. This is in Italy. When he was 17, he turned 17 January 8th of 1945. That was the last year of World War II. He decided to leave school and go off to war. So he did manage to join the Merchant Marine. And as such, it being in the midst of World War II, he was auxiliaried into the U.S. Navy and the, also the Coast Guard, uh, from which he um, was honorably discharged in 1945. Right here, if you're wondering what that is in his pocket, he, was t he told me that that's money. Might have been Italian lira. I don't know for sure. But uh, in any event there, that's what he decided to do. Um, he was a first-generation American. And GI Bill notwithstanding, when my father set out to buy our family home, the first home for our family back in 1954, he wasn't able to get a mortgage because back in those days, the banks weren't equal opportunity lenders. They are now. But he had to uh, take out a land contract. So he bought the family home, a nice brick home, two-story brick home in, the, in Detroit there, right, right within the old core city of Detroit on 16th Street, and uh, paid $10,000 for it. But he had to pay $100 a month. And his wage at the time was about $2 an hour. So if you do the math and you figure in taxes and that sort of thing, you can see that um, that was, uh, wow, that was really stretching it. But I'm just sharing this with you, just a um, little insight, you know, on what it was like for families like mine. Now, according to U.S. Census statistics, back in that era, back around 1950 through 55, a... Well, the median cost or the median price of a home was about $7,600, about 76, no, I'm sorry, $7,354. So you can see that um, he essentially was paying, and, and by the way, that was for a new home and perhaps under the GI Bill. But um, my father did what he had to do. And I should just point out in closing on that point, this was because, unfortunately, people of color, like my relatives, my family, and those in that community, they had to settle for the secondary market. And they were preyed upon by profiteers. And so they, in those days, they were set aside for that purpose. And so that was just part of the 
unfortunately, part of the plan. Does anyone recognize this? Maybe some of you have been there. The old Olympia Stadium, I grew up right near there. Uh, my father would uh, often be seen moonlighting here in the evenings. After work, he would come here during the hockey games and he would park cars to make some extra money uh, to make ends meet. And often he took me with him. So I was right there by his side. Yeah, by the way, I, uh, I met a celebrity or two there at the Olympia, the great Gordie Howe. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, and you know, I'm standing there next to him and you know, he's tall and he's, uh, he wasn't smiling. Um, and I looked up at him, I said, are, are, are you Mr. Howe? And he looked down at me, he said, and that was it. <laughs> and I was thrilled. <laughs> yeah, that was just one of those little perks uh, of um, being with my dad, out parking cars and over there hanging out around the Olympia Stadium. But when I was with my father, he would tell me that whatever work I decided to do, whatever I decided to do in life, whatever profession, he would always tell me, be the best at it. I'll never forget that. And also he taught me to be honest, to respect my elders. He told me to always keep my word. So these are values that he instilled in me as I was in my formative years. And so, you know, of course I have to appreciate that. And I, I consider those um, like humanist values. You know, I consider those um, the values that we all should have. You know, we, we all should seek to be our best and to do our best and to be honest with one another, right? And to be good citizens. And so that uh, is what he um, helped instill in me. He uh, in insisted that I address him as yes, sir, and to answer my mother as yes, ma'am. That was the rule. And uh, we didn't transgress that rule either. But they were, both my parents were loving to both of us. Uh, and I really, to all of us, I should say, and I really appreciate those values that um, they helped to instill in me and that are with me to this day. Because, you know, after all, if we took another course, if we chose not to keep our word, if we chose not to be honest with one another and to be the best that we could be, I mean, well, we might be, turn out to be, well, I don't know, a, a Donald Trump. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? My therapist told me to call, use, use your inside voice. Well, no, I'm not really in, I'm not really in therapy. <laughs> but it probably would help, given you know, the things that are happening these days, you know, the things that we've been seeing. So when I was um, a youngster back in the 1950s, I remember that we were colored people. We were colored. That's the way we referred to each other. Um, a little later on into the 60s, we became Negroes. And I'm going to share just a little bit more on that um, in, a, in just a little bit. But then uh, beyond the late 60s into the 70s and with the ascendancy of uh, actually one of Dr. King's former uh, lieutenants, Stokely Carmichael, you may have heard of him, he advocated black power. He broke with Dr. King. And so it became a matter now of black pride, black and I'm proud. Or as Nina, Nina Simone would sing, to be young, gifted, and black. That's where it's at. Maybe you heard that expression. But, but that is what we experienced 
at that point. A little later on into the 80s, and again, thanks to yet one, one other of Dr. King's lieutenants, and this time a Reverend Jesse Jackson, he popularized the term African-American or Afro-American. And so that's pretty much what is used commonly today. I'm not happy about it, but in any event, I was gonna tell you a little bit more about that word Negro. Um, now, of course, many of you no doubt know that Negro is a Spanish word for black. Yes, and it comes from the Spanish, Imperial Spanish colonial administration because Africans were referred to as black. And if a, if a, let me preface this by saying that the Africans, the blacks were considered to be a subset of the human race, a, a lower order of being. So if an African were to unite, shall we say, with, an, with a European, the offspring from that union would be considered an hybrid. The Spanish word for that was mulatto. You may have heard mulatto, okay. But in Spanish, mulatto. And it's from the same root as the word mule, you know, which is a combination of a horse and a burro or a donkey. So again, that was the way things were, you know, during that era, during that colonial period, that imperialist period back in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, etc. But um, moving on just a little further, one of the things that I experienced as a young person was the one drop rule. Has anyone heard that expression? This, is common, this was commonplace in the United States in the early 19th century. Uh, I take that back. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, up through the mid 20th century. And so in other words, if, you, if an individual had one drop of African blood, then they were considered black, considered Negro. Now, of course, a lot of individuals would pass. In other words, there was, um, say for instance, they might have been one-fourth African, one-eighth, you know, one-fourth would be a quadroon, a one-eighth would be an octoroon. An octoroon could typically pass, and they'd just go right into the larger society and just kind of blend right in, and no one would be the wiser, typically. But that was one of the realities of the time. Let me just kind of synchronize here. I wanted to show you one more photo of my dad. Uh, when he was 64 years old, just a year before he retired from Chrysler. Hope you can see that. He, he was a good guy. But to that point that I just mentioned the one drop rule. You see this gentleman? This is Walter White. He was the head of the NAACP. The NAACP. He considered himself Negro. He considered himself black. This was his autobiography right here, a man called White. Easily could have passed, shall we say, right? Here's what he said. I am a Negro. My skin is white. My eyes are blue, my hair is blonde. The traits of my race are nowhere visible upon me. So that's just an example. Um, we, we made reference to the third president of the United States, and we're gonna talk about him just a little bit more here in, in a moment. But it's said that he had a number of children by one of his slaves, some of whom left the plantation there at Monticello and moved on into the larger society one of whom I wrote a Wikipedia piece about Harriet, Harriet Hemings. And she was given her freedom. The way it was put, she was given her time. She wasn't officially, she was not officially freed by Thomas Jefferson, but he gave her, he had his foreman give her $50, put her on a stagecoach and send her to Philadelphia to meet with her brother who had already left, her brother Beverly. 
she was a beautiful young lady. She was about 21 years old at the time. And it is said, and, it's, and the circumstantial evidence supports that she was Thomas Jefferson's daughter. And so during, well, I won't really venture into Thomas Jefferson too much right now. Let's just <laughs> stay with the uh, plan here and be uh, conscious of the time. Well, there'll, there'll be plenty of time for him. There he is. All right, now Thomas Jefferson, interestingly, is considered the father of the Declaration of Independence of the United States. And so he was the one who penned the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And I don't know that I had a slide with that. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, focus on the word in that second line to the left, men. There's been controversy about that. Okay, we're going to explore that. So he was the author of such lofty sentiments uh, that he had, or, or lofty um, philosophy viewpoint that he, of course, had borrowed from other enlightened thinkers. But Thomas Jefferson had a problem. Let me just introduce you to his problem. George William Frederick or George III, the third British monarch of the House of Hanover. Thomas Jefferson had uh, a number of um, concerns and issues with this gentleman, and he wrote about it. One of the things that he wrote, was, um, uh, wrote about was the opposition that this monarch gave to the colonies in their attempts to restrict or to limit or end slavery and the importation of slaves. Here's what Thomas Jefferson wrote about it. I'll just, just some high highlights here. He's waged cruel war against the human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights and the life of liberty, life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him. Those would be Africans. Captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither on the ships. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. And so then... Determined to keep open a market where, you see that, I, uh, that emphasis is mine. Men should be bought and sold. It, it goes on to say some other things about him uh, prostituting the negative. And what that essentially means is that he would intervene legislatively in, within the British government to prevent the colonies from restricting the importation of slaves. So that's essentially what that means. But the point that I want to draw your attention to is... Thomas Jefferson wrote this. And so when he wrote earlier in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, we can see here he was referring to all men. He was referring to the slaves too. That brings us to the article that I shared with you. Um, did everyone get a, a copy of that? It's an excerpt from a New York Times article. And this is just a part of the article. Anyone that would want the whole article, it's in New York Times archives, it's from 25 years ago in April of 1993. But it points out some things about uh, Thomas Jefferson and particularly his viewpoint on blacks. And this is something that isn't really talked about very much, but if I could just share with you just a few lines here. In the third paragraph, it starts out by saying that racism is still the most corrosive problem in America and its major elements can be clearly be seen clearly in what Jefferson wrote and did. And this is a reference tangentially to the only book that Thomas Jefferson ever wrote, and it was entitled Notes on Virginia. 
And I'd like to share with you also just a paragraph or two from that book, chapter 14. But um, again, anyone that would like the full article, feel free to let me know. I can give you the URL for it, or who knows, maybe we can even post it on the site possibly, okay? It, it, it's intriguing. But at the very end, it states here that, and this is an author here, Charles Miller, I believe that Jefferson was firmly, centrally and emblematically in the stream of American anguish over slavery and race. Probably true, quite true. I also believe that the present America, in the present, in altered form, is like Jefferson. So essentially what's being said here is that the American personality, the American character, somewhat mirrors Mr. Jefferson. He was quite, quite an interesting person. A lot of inner conflicts, somewhat Orwellian. There's that expression that we're all equal. You know, he, he spoke of all men and unalienable rights. Yes, we're all equal. And it makes me think of um, the passage from the novel Animal Farm. Perhaps you've read it. The pigs, of course, had commandeered the farmhouse. They had uh, usurped leadership of the farm, and they sought to pacify all of the other farm animals. And so they posted on the wall, yes, we're all equals, but some of us are more equal than others. This is the book, or this is just the uh, inner leaf of uh, the book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Okay, just a couple of uh, highlights from this one. He said the first difference which strikes us is that of color whether the black of the Negro resides in the reticular mm -hmm. membrane between the skin and scarf skin or in the scarf skin itself, or whether it proceeds from the color of the blood, the color of the bile, or from some other secretion. The difference is fixed in nature. So we have some false science here, you know, sadly. But this gives you just a, in, some insight into his thinking. Now, you, you see this second paragraph. I think you see that in the handout that I gave you. But now, check out this third one. Says, and, and, and add to these flowing hair, a more elegant symmetry of form, their own judgment in favor of the other race. You know, in other words, blacks prefer to be with whites or interact with whites, whatever. Declared by their preference for them, as he says it. And he said that this is as, un as uniformly as in the preference of the orangutan for the black women over those of his own species. Do you believe that he wrote this? You can get the book, <laughs> chapter 14. It's, 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 it's fascinating. I think what I can do is just kind of bring our discussion to a close here just by talking with you briefly about some of my reasons for optimism and hope. Of course, we know that in America, I mentioned the one-drop rule. There was the separate but equal concept, which was the parallel of South African apartheid. In, a, in South Africa, it was referred to as separate development. In the United States, separate but equal. And interestingly, too, by the way, that concept was encoded into law in the United States by the Supreme Court in 1896. And that was in the Plessy versus Ferguson case. And if you haven't heard of it, uh, if you want to make note of it, it, for those of you who choose to, uh, you, you'd find that to be some interesting reading. But that is what introduced separate but equal into the United States. Um, it led to Jim Crow. And the things that we experienced in the first half of the, the things that were experienced in the United States in the first half of the 20th century, up until the time of the civil rights movement. But given South Africa and uh, separate development, there was someone by the name of, maybe you heard of him, Nelson Mandela. He endured 27 years in a prison, and he emerged victorious. And he came to be perhaps the most highly 
regarded public figure, world leader of his time. Also, there was a, another young man you may have heard of, uh, Barack Obama, who had a direct connection with Africa. His father was from Kenya. He endured eight years of insults against him, his wife. He was portrayed as a monkey. He was also considered to be a Muslim, you know, some sort of interloper, wasn't born in the United States. There was uh, some person who, who said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It'll come to me. He, someone who made his political career saying that sort of thing. But, of course, now Barack Obama, of course, is one of the, again, one of the most highly regarded public officials, world leaders, um, even today. So they transcended that. They, they um, rose above it. And we as human beings, this is the sort of thing that we can do. And it's similar to what happened with, and this is another sports reference, Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, 1947, he endured insults and being spit on and having things thrown at him and that sort of thing. But he became one of the greatest baseball players of all time, right? And so that is part of my, I mean, that's, that's part of me, shall we say. That's something that I kind of direct my attention to. I'd like to share this with you in closing. This gentleman, Theodore Parker, he was a Unitarian minister. Now, uh, to preface my comment on this, you may have heard the reference, the quote by Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so many credit that to Dr. King, but actually, now this is from 1853, and I think we should uh, more appropriately credit, credit it to Minister uh, Parker, Reverend Parker, wherein he said, look at the facts of the world, you see a continual and progressive triumph of the right. And then he goes on to say, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe, the arc is a long one, etc." And of course, you could, um, you could uh, look him up as well. You know, you could uh, get um, access to some of his writings. But at the end here, he says, things refuse to be mismanaged long. And here's a reference to Jefferson. He said, Jefferson trembled when he thought of slavery and remembered that God is just. Ere long, all America will tremble. And what that refers to is the Civil War that broke out in 1861 and in which 600,000 men were killed. So that was part of American history. That event settled the slave question once and for all. But with that, I think I'll to bring my discussion to a close here. I think this is the appropriate time, perhaps. And uh, I thank you for your attention, and you know, I'll look forward to any questions that you may have.